Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is an episode in which I interviewed someone regarding Scientology and cults and groupthink and that sort of thing. So let's just get to that. My, my name is, is John Atak. What slim reputation I have perhaps hinges on a, a book called Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, uh, which was originally published in 1990 and is the only detailed history of the Scientology group and its founder, Ron Hubbard. Um, I spent 16 years uh, being harassed by Scientology for, you know, exposing the truth about them. And I sort of retreated from that after about the 10th court case 20 years ago and put my time into understanding group dynamics because it was obvious to me, having then dealt with about 500 ex-members, that the same dynamics happen in all human groups. And while a lot of people in the counter-cult world will talk about um, mind control, this, you know, is a term of art, it, they are also keen to let people understand that a, probably about 90% of what happens in a group is quite normal. It, they're normal social dynamics. Um, so that we, you know, Solomon Ash's experiments that show that we will, if we go into a room full of people who say that two, you know, lines of different length are the same length, about two thirds of people will say, oh, they're the same length. Um, Milgram's experiments, Zimbardo's experiments, um, Muzaffar Sharif, lots of brilliant people in the 50s and 60s did work that you, you would now question ethically because some of the things they did were a little bit strong. But they did reveal that, that there is um, a sort of a group think and urge towards obedience in human beings. And our education system, unfortunately, promotes this. Um, my good friend Ira Chalef last year published a book called Intelligent Disobedience. Um, the title comes from the training of guide dogs that you can you know, you want a guide dog. If you're walking along and you're blind and you have a guide dog, you don't want to walk into things. So you may tell the dog to do something, but the dog has to be able to intelligently disobey. And Iris' question is, why aren't we teaching children to intelligently disobey? Why are we teaching obedience? Um, it, it, you know, disobedience doesn't have to be um, contentious. It doesn't have to be aggressive. So I started to look at all of the dynamics of that. I've spent, you know, the last 20 years looking at that. And last year published a book called Opening Minds in the attempt to move between disciplines and say, well, these things happen in, in gangs. They happen in the radicalization of terrorists, um, which, you know, is a very important area, area for us all to be looking at at the moment. Um, and even, you know, benign groups can gradually turn nasty you know there's a lovely book by a psychiatrist called arthur dykeman called them them and us where he talks about um a group called life force which seemed to start out as a kind of odd religious group but was you know perfectly benign the leader died and the guy who took over then pushed it into this awful controlling group where people were expected to do whatever he wanted um, so the whole area interests me. Wow, I have so many questions now. You, I'm taking little, little notes here. There's like a, uh, several things I want to do a deep dive with you on. Let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist here in Seattle. Where are you, John? You're, you're, tell us where I'm, you're at. I'm just outside Nottingham in, in the very heart of England. 
Awesome. Thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about this. So let's rewind here. Holy crap, Scientology harassed you. Tell us about, are, are your lawyers allowing you to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Well, no, nobody prohibits me from talking about anything. Um, yes, I, I, as a 19-year-old, I became engaged with Scientology. I was never a live-in member. And so, although I spent nine years in there, and I, I did way up into the upper realms of their teachings, I was an OT5, and there are eight of these super levels where you're meant to have supernatural powers. So I did most of them. And I became disillusioned with the tough and aggressive um, approach of the cult, the incredible amounts of money they were soaking out of people. And I protested and I found myself, you know, in a club of one. There were many people who were upset with Scientology, but there was no one in the, in the UK, no one at all, who was willing to put their name on it and say, you know, so I went public. And the harassment began immediately and went on on a daily basis for 16 years. That would be, you know, being followed by private detectives, having people marching up and down outside my house with placards. Uh, my house was broken into a couple of times. Um, you know, wherever I went in the world, there'd be somebody, you know, after me. Uh, nasty, scurrilous little stories were put out about me. Um, some of them in print, in fact, I lived in East Grinstead, which is where Scientology is headquartered in the south of England. And they put out this horrific little pamphlet about me and pushed it through all the doors. I've been accused. They accused me of rape, um, child molesting, attempted murder. You know, the sort of things that if I'd done them, I'd be in prison for, basically. Um, and they, it, it's just a hate campaign, an incredible hate campaign. It continues on the Internet to this day. Um I eventually I wrote a book about it, uh, which was very well received. It became a bestseller on at, at Amazon, um, and in the end, it just became too wearing. You know, I, I couldn't I couldn't afford the lawyers to to fight back against it, and I moved away in 2013. Uh, so you know, after 17 years away, um, I realised that. Most people who've been involved in Scientology didn't have my sort of experience. I wasn't traumatized or humiliated in any way. You know, the two times I was shouted at by Scientologists, I shouted back. I didn't realize I wasn't meant to. But I, by then, had talked with at least 500 ex-members, many of whom had had severely traumatizing experiences, being forced to have an abortion, for example, or... Um, a girl who was uh, sexually abused from the age of six for five years by her stepfather. And was then when she complained to the police, Scientology, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, indeed, persuaded her to withdraw her complaint. Her abuser has subsequently been uh, convicted on confession. So there's no doubt it happened and there's no doubt it was covered up. So there were horrible abuses going on and people were being you know made ridiculous promises you know they, they claim they can cure cancer and things like this you know privately when nobody's got a tape recorder on and they of course you know 11 uh, senior officials of Scientology were, were sent to prison in the United States for uh, burglary breaking and entering uh, bugging government officers stealing government material false imprisonment kidnapping all of these things they confessed to. There were similar cases in Canada and France showing that they were infiltrating government agencies um, to collect material that they could use to blackmail government officials. Um, 
So really bizarre organization that I in 2013, I came back because I saw that people weren't recovering. And I wrote a great deal, many blogs at um, Tony Ortega's underground bunker to try and help people, you know, reframe their experience and move away from the damaging concepts of Scientology and, you know, live easier and better lives. I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, two and a half years ago, I met this, this wonderful guy, Dick Kelly. Uh, and along with Steve Hassan and a few other people, we sat down and, and dreamed this project called the Open Minds Foundation, which we now have foundations in the UK, the US and Holland. We have one coming on in, in Belgium as well. With the idea of spreading information about social psychology generally you know we'd like people to know what cognitive dissonance is we don't understand why children aren't taught that uh, when your beliefs are challenged you, your beliefs tend to get firmer you know the the better the evidence the the more people you know reject it we'd like those fundamental concepts to be known because we we feel there's a preventative statement to be made here something preventative to be done so that Kids won't be lured into being radicalized or, or being groomed by pedophiles or, or what have you. They'll understand what human predators are and how human predators get us to do things, you know, and, you know, trick us and trap us. Wow, that's a wonderful uh, movement. Are you getting any traction on that? We've basically we have, I think, now about 150 um, academics and counselors who are involved Um we have very good relationship with the International Cultic Studies Association, um, basically where we have people, you know, we have material about recovery and we'll be developing that. But our, our main focus is on prevention, not on cure. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've gathered quite a lot of people and we're just about to launch a new website, which seeks to be you know, a primer on the subject. It seeks to to tell people about the subject, you know, rather than selling them on the subject and getting them to fund us. It, it seeks to just go out there and help people. Um, and largely, you know, the work we do is free. You know, we'll be doing putting up interviews on um, YouTube for free um, just to get this message out there. So this is Open Minds. Where, where do people find it again? OpenMindsFoundation.org openmindsfoundation.org and your mission is to help people recover from these experiences and to educate people to prevent people from being subjected to these abuses is that am i putting that right it is true but but the emphasis is very much on prevention we do have some we have some of the most highly experienced uh, counselors in the world and it's a very strange area because when people come to to counsel people who've been abused in a group setting, there isn't necessarily a lot of material out there. So I've often dealt with cult members who actually felt that counseling was damaging to them because their counselor didn't understand the approach um, to make. You know, and they, they used a sort of cookie cutter approach. So we're working with Jilly Jenkinson here and uh, Rachel Bernstein in Los Angeles with my dear friend Christian Cherko here, who have a tremendous amount of experience in this area, and you know Francis Peters in in Holland, and trying to produce material. Jilly has just got her PhD, and she is looking to do an accredit, make an accredited course um, here in Britain, where counsellors can learn 
these other little things you need to know to help somebody who's come out of a traumatic cult experience or indeed you know any other group abuse situation can you comment a little bit on that what what are the highlights regarding the pitfalls that therapists fall into regarding making mistakes with uh, helping people like this do you know yeah i do i mean i've worked with about 600 people myself over the years you know directly and i've written a lot about recovery and, and there's a kind of missing step for many counselors they sort of think well you know i can use cognitive behavioral therapy or you know whatever it is i do and that will help them but there's a step first off which is for the person to um, disengage from the cult and it, it's pretty easy to do when you know how but but it's a, a missing step you have to, the person has to look at the beliefs of the group and decide which of them are valid so you know if you've just take a book by Ron Hubbard or, you know, Darfrey John or whoever it was and look at what you were taught and talk about it with other ex-members, talk about it with other people generally and decide whether it's true. I'll give you an example. In Scientology, they say, Hubbard said that there's this triangle called the affinity, reality, communication triangle. And he said these three things equal understanding, affinity, reality, communication. And if you increase any corner of the triangle, you increase everything else. So if you communicate more with somebody, you'll understand them better. You'll have more affinity for them. You'll help share a, a greater reality. And that all sounds fine. And I believed that for nine years. And then I sat down and thought, well, hang on, yelling at somebody is a form of communication. And I don't feel more affinity for people if they yell at me. Uh, shooting somebody is a form of communication, and I certainly don't feel. So this is, in fact, it's just not true. It, and it's, it's a way of instilling an idea into somebody uh, that stops thinking, that stops somebody from, you know, thinking for themselves. And they think within the model that the cult has set. Now, if you apply therapy form to that person they will still be thinking within that mindset and you know, it needs to be disengaged i had a client who um who who asked me you know that we talked about reality there i talked about reality hubbard defined reality as agreement the world is real because we all agree it's real which is an, an interesting philosophical point but not necessarily very helpful when you fall down the stairs now this woman had been in Scientology from the age of two to the age of 21. She was now nearly 40. And she, she asked me in our first conversation, is reality really agreement? And I said, well, yes, if you're a hypnotist, it is, because it's getting everybody to agree with your view of the world. But for the rest of us, no, um, the universe is here, whether we agree it's here or not. Um, that, you know, that's my, my perception of this. And this thought shifted something in her the next week when we spoke she said that she had used scented um, laundry conditioner and uh, which which is meaningless to anybody who's not a scientologist what she was referring to was hubbard's claim that all psychiatrists psychologists and psychotherapists and i'm sorry that includes you too kirk uh, the psychs are basically running this part of the galaxy uh, by using perfume particularly rose perfume and so Hubbard forbade any of his staff from using any scented product. And so here she was at age 37, finally going, I've used scented laundry conditioner. What was important about that was that we'd not talked about it. And so her thinking about the nature of reality in Hubbard's terms had kick-started 
a process where she could now question, you know, all of these ideas that, that she was embedded in, you know, as a second generation member, she had nothing to compare, you know, th this set of statements with. And so she was able to, you know, and in fact, I talked with her earlier today. And in the last four years, she's thought her way through most of Scientology. Once that process is happening, you, you know, you don't have to sit and wait for a year for it to happen. Once that process is happening naturally, the person will be more accessible to counselling because they'll they'll be challenging that stuff themselves while you're helping them to, you know, get the, their life back together. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I would imagine without training or awareness, therapists would be completely ignorant of that step in therapy or that element because yeah. it's so different than other clients, right? Uh, as you're talking about it, it's I'm like... I, I kind of get what you're saying, but I, I would need much more information or consultation with someone that knew particulars about that that group of people and their belief system to 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 really be effective. So that's that's very interesting. I think one way into it is to get the the former member to talk to you about the beliefs a little bit, and for you to just say, well, you know, do you believe that? So, for example, Scientologists believe in postulates. And this is very much the part of the, the new thought movement, these, you know, the secret, the law of association, all of these people who think that the world is is working according to what we think, you know, Christian science, uh, which for me is a completely mad idea now. But for nine years, I believed it. And so you have these postulates. And the thing is that anything that happens to you is because of your decisions. You know, um, situationism in psychology is you know, completely the opposite, the idea that there can be external causes, you know, that so the Scientologists will think, well, I caught a virus because I was being a bad person. You know, I wasn't thinking in the right way. Um, so you get the person to talk to you about the concepts of the group and, you know, pretty much go Rogerian on it and let them talk. And they will as they talk about it, because in Scientology, you're forbidden to talk about it it's called verbal technology and you're not allowed to analyze any ideas just by talking about it people start to go actually that's a little bit crazy and it releases them from you know from those difficulties i mean another area and as a family therapist you know far more about this than i do another area is attachment and attachment theory and what tends to happen with extreme cult membership is disorganized attachment where the cult leader is a sort of parental figure or somebody in the cult is a parental figure who to whom you look for love and comfort but who is actually the source of upset and disagreement so you have that kind of double bind attachment which reduces the cult member to an almost childlike state where they you know just become obedient to whatever the leader wants yeah, I can absolutely see that happening, and I have seen it actually in real life. It's it's a terrifying state to be in, to just be beaten down to that scared, reactive, obedient position, yeah. you know, and that's where they want you, right? And the strange thing is that, that you'll find highly intelligent people who actually had very good childhood attachment can be pushed into this. So there is a very good new book um, by Alexandra Stein, uh, sorry, Alexandra Stein, uh, S-T-E-I-N, uh, called Terror, Love and Brainwashing. She is a, a 
a professor of social psychology, but she went through a, a terrible little uh, left-wing cult called the O uh, in the US and, you know, went from being, you know, she's highly intelligent, lovely person, but she was, you know, I think for about 10 years, she was crushed and oppressed into this little group, believing that she was doing something wonderful to change the world, but actually simply being you know, in a, a disorganized attachment with, with the woman who, who ran the group. Uh, with that group, it, it came to a happy ending because the members all one day said, we're leaving, <laughs> and the cult just, you know, dissipated. But years to, to, you know, work out what had happened to her. Yeah, the myth that someone, you know, people say, oh, I, I would never do that. And, yeah. of course, we know that under the right circumstances, they very well could. Of course, People who have been abused and mistreated and have more insecure attachment styles are probably more vulnerable to these sorts of effects, uh, but everyone is ultimately vulnerable. So, John, tell me, how does this apply to your thoughts and work regarding gangs and terrorists? I'm, I'm interested in that angle. Well, if, if we look at, um, with gangs, you, you're dealing with, there are violent dynamics there you know, add to the to the problem that if somebody's going to, you know, punch you or stab you, then that that is another another area. But the recent work that's been done, for example, on coercive control, um, as it applies in family relationships, say Evan Stark's work um, shows what Stark has put forward is that it isn't the domestic violence that we should be looking at. It's the coercive control, because the domestic violence is what happens after the coercive control. In the UK, we, we actually have, um, it's a criminal act now, coercive behaviour within an intimate relationship. And there's some contention about that, but the statute's been with us for just over a year. There have been over 60 prosecutions and men have been sent to, and thus far it's only been applied to men, but men have been sent to prison, not for domestic violence, but for completely controlling the life of you know, an intimate partner. And I must, you know, I must say it does happen the other way too. And it happens in same sex couples as well. That notion of coercive control within a gang, you have the coercive control and the violence. When you look to radicalizing terrorists, there's, there's an, a fascinating division. Um, there's a book called Driven to Death by Ariel Marari, who's a professor in Tel Aviv. I think he's allied to Yale as well. And he has spent the last 35 years interviewing um, failed suicide bombers and the you know, families and uh, friends of um, successful suicide bombers, if successful is the right word to use about such a terrible thing. And he's come to the conclusion, which is generally accepted, that you're not dealing with mentally ill people. You're not dealing with particularly with weak people. Among bombers in Israel, in Palestine, there is a higher level of, um, you know, dependent personality disorder. That much he found. But there's a really interesting thing to me, and that's the difference between kind of cult and culture. If you were born in Palestine and you are part of the experience of, of life there, then you're not joining a cult. You're not being radicalized. 
because at the age of two, you, you may well have been taken along to a photographer and had a little toy suicide belt put on to have your photograph taken. You'll have seen images of uh, Shahada, uh, martyrs, on billboards all around you. These people are praised. So the culture has actually moved into doing this. Whereas if you look to radicalized terrorists in the West, um, you know, Muhammad Atta or through the whole slew of Western terrorists, they tend actually to be, they're not part of, of a culture. They have been radicalized. And looking at them, they usually, their profile with a high educational level, uh, many people with doctorates who've been radicalized, uh, some of them doctorates in science. So, you know, critical thinking doesn't save you um, from this, um, which is a point we can maybe come back to. They often have come from moderate Muslim families and they tend to feel that, that that's a problem. So it's not that the family or the culture, you know, where in Palestine the culture is around you saying, you know, we need to fight back, you know, we've been oppressed, what have you. Instead, a cult is being created where you have some oppressive leader who finds people who've been dislocated. I mean, recruitment into a um, a cult group or a, an oppressive high demand group it isn't about weakness it's never about weakness because they don't want weak members they only want strong people they only want competent people and the the understanding is that we be all become vulnerable at any moment um, of dis dislocation so um, if you know, it's particularly true of adolescents and, and people as as they retire <clears throat> these two times of life are the most vulnerable times of life so you have groups like the larouches who will recruit people who are in their upper 60s you know and sponge all the money out and they can um but at the other end you have college students who in their first semester at college are the most vulnerable of people simply because of the dislocation from their friends their family their, their town their normal experience if you've got a new job somewhere if you have had a relationship fail it is the dislocation that's important the vulnerability is is that we're all normally open to new ideas when we're taken out of our old routines so quite typically you'll have a young muslim who comes from a moderate background is highly educated goes to take a degree in university and during the first semester they'll be approached by a recruiter and they'll join in as you know it's uh, there are some people who even talk of the about the bunch of guys hypothesis that terrorists are recruited simply by going and eating a pizza with some of their friends and playing football and the next minute they're strapping on a suicide belt i'd say from my study there's rather more to it than that that they're given ideas about the the bad things that have been done to whatever their group is so you know it, it's not just Islam, radicalization, for example, the Kurds in the PKK or the Tamil Tigers. These are not religious groups. They're not following, they're not certainly not Muslim groups. Um, they are groups of people who feel that they've been oppressed, that, you know, the Tamils were not allowed to vote in Sri Lanka. And that started as a let's try and get the vote and turned into an awful terrorist group. So people are dislocated. They're then shown a new group that they can be part of, and they're shown 
you know, the terrible things that have happened to that group. That's part of radicalization. And it's all one sided. It's all, you know, um, this is how Muslims have been mistreated in this part of the world with no idea, for example, of what happened in Kosovo, where Western nations came together to stop the persecution of Muslims. And you know, I think we have to address the injustice. The, you know, there's a personal grievance is a hell of a route into radicalization. And what's happened in the West is that Muslims are now being, you know, there's terrible prejudice against them. Um, none of it based in reason, because the group that are actually dangerous are the Salafis or Wahhabis. And among them, and they're about half a percent of all Muslims in the world, only half a percent. And among them, most of them are not militant. But what's happened is that by people... I mean, a Sikh was uh, attacked the other day in, in the US because somebody thought he was a Muslim because you know, he's wearing a turban, which is not actually typical attire for Muslims. That kind of prejudice, of course, will bring about radicalization where people are saying, well, you know, you're acting unfairly towards us. So we have to be very cautious about that. And we have to better understand other cultures so that we don't become you know, xenophobic and, and act in this way. So, so that's one solution. Uh, are there other solutions that, I don't know if you've thought about this, but uh, are there solutions to these situations where you have a dislocated young man who ends up becoming radicalized? Are, are there proposed solutions to that? Yeah, and there are two things which, which I think are at the front end of this. One is, is to talk about human predators, the, talk, the type of people who do radicalize people who really don't have the best aims they tend to be narcissistic uh, they tend to be psychopathic and we don't teach anything about this now i don't want any kind of witch hunt against sociopaths and psychopaths or you know whatever terms antisocial personalities whatever terms you want to use i tend to call them human predators because i'm not making a, trying to make a psychiatric diagnosis but if somebody is, um, you know, a risk taker that, that, and they want to push you into taking risks, you need to be wary. If somebody is superficially very charming and they flatter you a great deal, you need to be wary. So we can teach people about, you know, the, these behaviours and hopefully as society goes on, we'll find more compassionate ways of, of dealing with them, you know, and keeping them from harming other people. Um, there is some very exciting work that, that has actually changed psychopathic behavior, at least in teenagers. I don't think anything has yet been found that works for adults, but we need to keep doing that. We, you know, the witch hunt is, is not the right place to go, but recognizing such people and being able to keep a distance from them would save, you know, it, it, it's also true in abusive relationships that, that one of the, you know, the abusive partner is predatory. Um, the other thing is to understand the approaches, the you know how recruitment is done. So all the sales techniques. I mean, I that's I became interested in all of the disciplines that feed into this, in some ways because Scientology uses nearly all of these approaches. So, uh, for example, salespeople in Scientology study a, a book called Big League Sales Closing Techniques uh, by a man called Les Dane, which is a hard sell manual that teaches them how to cut through any resistance and squeeze the last drop out of people. I mean, I, I remember talking to a bank manager who 
and, and asking him about the loans that they gave to Scientologists, you know, because they borrow thousands, tens of thousands of pounds to pay in Scientology. And he said, well, actually, as soon as we notice that somebody's a Scientologist, we tag their file. Because what happens is they come and say, I need a new car. I need £5,000, £10,000 for a new car. We lend them the money. And what they haven't worked out is that we can see that they pay it to Scientology. You know, <laughs> rather obvious, really, when you think about it, the check comes back and it's got Scientology on it. And so there is this awareness that people will be pressured to hand over cash. That's on the other side of it. People and, you know, the whole society being more aware of, you know, how this is working and the terrible things that are happening. But if somebody comes to you and starts flattering you and, you know, telling you how smart you are and, and doubtless you are, you know, I'm not saying you're not. Um, and how handsome you are and all of this sort of stuff. If that person is a stranger, you need to be incredibly cautious. Um, the techniques that are used for rapport building, getting you to say something and agreeing with it. You know, there's a simple trick used by salespeople called a yes set, where if you ask somebody 10 questions and the obvious answer to the first nine is yes, they're much more likely to answer yes to the last question. So, you know, the sky is very nice and blue today, isn't it? Yes. And uh, you look cheerful. Yes. Uh, would you like to buy this, you know, timeshare plan for your holiday or something? Um, there are all sorts of ways in. And I think understanding that, that we aren't, in fact, totally conscious of everything that's happening around us. We can't be. And so there are ways of, you know, changing how we feel. That brings me to the work of uh, Yuval Laor, who is <clears throat> a very smart guy who is, I've been working with at Open Minds the last two years. He did his PhD on the subject of fervor. And I suppose technically he's a cognitive scientist of religion, which is an awful mouthful. But what he looked at was the way that, that people experience awe. And from the experience of awe, often towards something that's, you know, a fantastic euphoric peak experience that they will have a sense of awe they will then look to the person who provided them with the technique and believe anything they say and they'll create a feedback loop where their awe is stimulated and they feel fervor for this thing um i must say having as I say i've been working with them for a couple of years now that that this is an amazing new tool to 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 look at how how it is that we believe these things. So, for, for example, in Scientology, you'll be given a, a drill called Training Routine Zero, where you sit and stare at somebody. They say confront and they don't like the word stare, but you have locked an eye contact with somebody for some hours, the training manual says, for some hours. Now, if you've never meditated or stared at something for a long period of time, you won't know about the Gansfeld effect, which is well documented, where you will start hallucinating. And you will go into a kind of uh, trance state, if you like, an altered state uh, where you'll feel euphoric, uh, colors, perceptions heighten, typical effects of hypnotic trance, in fact. If you've never experienced that, when I came to Scientology, I'd studied Zen meditation. And so it didn't mean anything to me. I knew that faces melt when you stare at them for a long time. Um, and colors move around because the brain is desperately trying to fill in and make something make sense out of a, an immobile world. Um, but if you don't know that, then you can think something fantastic has just happened, something really wonderful. And you'll attribute that to Scientology, not to staring. 
And so you'll then believe the other things and be willing to pay money to, to follow them until eventually you'll be told that 75 million years ago, uh, all of the, the uh, bodies of beings in this sector of the galaxy on 76 planets were rounded up and their spirits were extracted and dropped into volcanoes with hydrogen bombs where they were implanted for 36 days with images of the future and you are actually composed of millions of these little beings and you'll end up paying that's in fact i've just revealed the third secret level it goes on to the fourth the fifth the sixth and the seventh all of them are about you know getting yourself separated from these little body thetans these little spirits and the point is that it all started with you staring at somebody and feeling a little bit high yeah i see i see the exact same thing in psychotherapy and actually in education i see colleagues of mine and i guess i've been somewhat guilty of it myself at times will create for clients or students a emotional experience that is very intense and Mm. and then proceed to sort of recruit those people into their circle for their own means and some of the colleagues that i work with i think ultimately it's a good thing (laughs) you know it's, it's it's inspiring people it's getting people to go deeper it's it's helping people to uh, realize their own goals for themselves. It's but used for evil. I can absolutely see how awe and intense emotional experience can lock someone into a charismatic leader mm. uh, in the exact way that you're describing. Yeah, and and what you say is 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 right and true. That it, fervor is not of itself a bad thing. In fact, you know our sense of awe in the world. You know. Um, we, we feel awe at vastness, we feel awe at competence in other people, we, we feel awe at beauty, we feel awe at celebrity, which is a little more worrying. And in cult groups, you know, the, the leader becomes a celebrity and there's that kind of awe. Um, and we feel awe towards anything which seems supernatural or miraculous, you know, inexplicable to us. And it is that kind of awe that, that inspires artists to make great art. Um, and, and, fr- and frankly, inspires therapists to become therapists a lot of times, you know? Yeah. So it, it, I guess it all just depends on what's the outcome and what's the intention of, well, what's the outcome? Because <laughs> I could see yeah. a charismatic leader <laughs> intentionally trying to make the world a better place by creating a cult that goes out and kills people, you know? Um, yeah. So I guess it's outcome, right? It is, yeah. And and it, it's also who's who's pushing the button who's making it happen if you know that this technique is going to lead to this if you meditate for example and you you have the experience of bliss in meditation which many people do then that can be a very positive thing unless it's being controlled from the outside if you realize it's the technique doing it not you know the supernatural ability of a leader so you get a group say like transcendental meditation and they you, they only have a couple of techniques there, but they're very powerful. So the first the first technique is you sit down and um, stare in meditation while reciting the name of a deity or demon. I mean, they they got into a lot of trouble over this because they claim to be a non-religious practice, and it's a secret. You're not meant to tell people that you know you're reciting the name of 
a deity or a demon. And it was, I believe, eventually ruled a, a religious practice in the U.S. courts. So uh, there was an attempt to put it to the whole U.S. military, which was stopped by this. Um, the meditation technique of itself is probably okay. Um, there was a guy called Benson who researched it and said, if you just say the word one, you don't need, you know, he called it the relaxation response. But I, there is a problem there. And the problem is uh, what's called relaxation-induced anxiety. And it's said that perhaps 40% of people, if they sit and meditate, will become ever more anxious. It won't calm them. Uh, they need to do physical activity. They need to exercise before they can do this. And I've most certainly met this in you know, members of TM who were just absolutely hysterical with their, you know, and desperate to do 12 hours a day of this. Um, so it's it's about what is the technique and what are the benefits of the technique um, rather than, you know, who is the wonderful person who devised this technique who I must slavishly follow from now on, you know? So you said something earlier that critical thinking doesn't prevent this from happening, which yeah. I'd, I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. Why, you know, why do some people with sharp minds and education around being skeptical and um, questioning claims that people make why what why are these people susceptible to this sort of thing i think the first thing is is probably a disillusionment with our society and and the understanding that there is a tremendous amount of corruption in our society and people therefore look to find something that's more ideal that's better and so you know if they find a group of friendly apparently rational people they'll be drawn into this if we look historically it's really quite interesting how many of the significant scientists, you know, have been members of religious cults. So, for example, Newton, the father of modern science, was a Unitarian, which was, I, I'm going to label it cultic, because he could actually have been executed for that belief in the England of his time. You know, it was a pretty severe belief. He was also an alchemist and spent more time, you know, trying to squeeze gold out of lead than he did doing scientific work. Um, John Dalton was a, a Baptist minister and a fervent believer. Uh, Michael Faraday, electricity, was a, a member of a small cult group called the Sandemanians. So the thing is that even incredibly rational people, the most rational people, and you'll find the same thing indeed with 20th century physicists. You know, while Einstein didn't necessarily believe in God, he was a mystic. He did have some very interesting ideas. And the same is true of Niels Bohr. Uh, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, they all had these mystic beliefs. Um, that doesn't, it, it, so it, it's almost it's in a different compartment. It's existing in a different way. You can be incredibly rational and, and have very developed critical thinking. Um, I think, you know, by the time I got to Scientology, I, I already had you know, quite a background in um, in thinking and I'd spent a fair amount of time uh, discussing religious beliefs with people of religion and you know from a a rationalist point of view let's say uh, a skeptical point of view but it didn't save me and in Scientology I knew a couple of NASA physicists one of the guys on the Apollo program a senior guy was a Scientologist I, I met astonishing musicians like Chick Corea uh, who were you know really at the top of their profession um, 
I knew doctors. I think there were eight medical doctors I knew in the UK. I knew dentists. I knew people who'd had a training in science. Um, I knew lawyers who'd you know, had a training in argument. It didn't save them. It is far more to do with the awe and the fervor, to, to do with our feelings. Um, there's a neuroscientist called um, Jill Bolt, I think is her name. And she said that, that while we, we believe that we are thinking creatures with feelings, it is more true to say that we are feeling creatures that think. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So these people were also potentially disillusioned with society. Is that what you're saying? So the awe and disillusioned with society is the the alchemy of cult membership. Yes, you're looking for a, a group that's trying to transform the world often, and you know, not always. Some people do come in because you know. I mean, I'd had a, a, a bad romantic relationship. My girlfriend had run off with one of my best friends and I was 19, you know, I was very emotionally susceptible. And so I walked into Scientology. But for many people, it's simply the sense that, you know, the world is not as good a place as it should be, given all of the wonderful technology we have, all of the fantastic medicine. You know, why are we still fighting wars? Why are we still destroying the environment? Why aren't we, you know, why have we got so many people in prison? Why are we're not in a better shape and somebody comes along and says well we can transform the world and people become interested does this, uh, so it, does this apply to political parties as well i i'm sure it does um, particularly looking at the extreme left and and right-wing groups you know even a group like the ku klux klan they believe they they're going to do something positive and transformative if you look at hitler and his cronies they're kind of weird because they really, really seem to have fervently believed that they were saving the world. They were saving the good German people from the Slavs and the Jews and the Romanies and the blacks and the communists and all of this. So they, they weren't driven by evil. They weren't driven by a sadistic, sociopathic desire to harm others. But that's what happened, you know, that it, it became a machine that just destroyed everybody that came near it because of its ridiculous... Um, philosophical ideas, you know, the idea of the survival of the fittest into the survival of the nastiest, you know, where fitness became a physical thing rather than, a, you know, fitness of compassion. So Interesting. I've worked a lot with teenagers in gangs in mm. my career, and I, I'm curious what your work informs that part, you know, that membership and that participation. I think probably that I'd like to have a long conversation with you about that and learn more. I looked at um, gangs historically. I was um, very. There's a group called the Scuttlers. Um, they were violent gangs in Manchester in England in the 1870s. And when I sort of read about you know the Hell's Angels and the Crips and the Bloods and all of this kind of thing, it really struck me that you're seeing. The same kind of group dynamic, they, you know, the uniform of the group, the, the dress code, um, the language of the group, you know, the loaded language terms that are, you know, that make you an in-group in member, uh, the violence in these groups. The Scotlers, you might get 500 of them out on the streets, and these would be almost all male between the ages of 13 and 25. And it's a peculiar economic situation because they were earning the money. It was only very young, healthy men who could get the jobs in the, the factories at that time. And so when you went past that, you started relying upon your you know, younger members of your family to support you. 
So they had a great status. They had cash and they'd go out on a Saturday night and have street fights with, you know, maybe 500 people. People were killed in these fights. Policemen were were killed in these fights. Um, they'd use their belt buckles as flails, you know, rather like the Hells Angels use motorbike chains. Um, they'd use blades. And it, it was just this, that there's a culture, and you can see it, say, in the Cosa Nostra, in the Mafia, that they have a kind of code of loyalty, that, you know, that they have their way of looking at things, which isolates from them from the world and gives them that same kind of elitism that any other cult group has, you know, the sense they belong to the best organization. In gangs, as, as you know, surely far better than I do, you have the other edge of it, which is the violence, which is how somebody may be hurt. <clears throat> you also, there'll always, almost always be some drug involved, you know, alcohol in, in the mafia, but, you know, in, there'll be, you know, amphetamines, drugs that, that will tend towards violence will be used. Many factors. Yeah, yeah. Using your frame regarding other groups, I guess I would say that in my experience, you have groups of people who are oppressed for one reason or another, usually racism, and yeah. they uh, their entire families are, are and immigrants also. Their entire families yep. and communities are being are being oppressed and harmed and put and down. Marginalized. Yeah, marginalized. Mar yeah, marginalized. And then you, you know, as a teenager, you're looking around and you're you 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 don't see a future for yourself. You don't have yeah. hope of of making any kind of money or any prestige or any self esteem. Your school grades are suffering. Your parents uh, are probably divorced. Your your uh, your your parents are probably they might be addicts. They might be uh, depressed. They might have trauma problems. They might be overstressed, and you're kind of alone. And yes, you have like you say you're disillusioned, and you then come across this powerful group of peers that are usually a little older. And they are like a little family. You, you know, yeah. you have the father figure and the mother figure and, and they have beliefs, you know, and they have, uh, and the emotional awe, uh, it, I'm imagining is either within drug use or within the violence. You know, when you go out yes. on a mission to uh, take revenge on a rival gang, that is a very emotional experience and bonding experience with your with your comrades and instantly bonds you know you with those people you're in the foxhole you're exactly you, you know Brothers in arms. yeah and 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 the jumping in experience is also very emotionally intense and yeah. it's interesting that that culture of of gangs emerged sort of organically uh you know that compels membership and trying to get people out of gangs is one of the hardest things i ever did clinically yeah i, I had a a kid who uh, i thought was ambivalent about it and then he 
got into a scuffle and almost died. He got shot um, and and almost died, and he's in the hospital. And I'm talking with him, and and he's like, "Yeah, I'm done." And I'm looking at him, I'm like, "Well, obviously, you know, you're you you're in the hospital for months now. Uh, you almost died." And then as soon as he was mobile again, he was right back at it with the gangs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as you said, or as the other, you said, someone else said, we're feeling people who think, we, you know, yeah. we're, not, we're not logical. We, we go for things that, that feel right to us that aren't necessarily uh, the best call for our lives, right? Yeah, uh, it was Jill Bolt Taylor who said that the name came back to me. Okay. Um, I, I think what you say is very true that, that you talk about the family dynamic in a cult in a gang, sorry, in a gang. And I think, you know, that, that is the thing that woke me up. It's somewhere, you know, it's a long, about 25 years ago now that, that I looked at it and, well, well, you know, we're human beings. Our psychology is the same. <laughs> Wherever we go, we react to the same things. And so, you know, notions of attachment to family, the sense of belonging. And and you also point to something that, that I don't think our society wants to know, which is that aggression and the adrenaline rush it gives it is, you know, it's a very high feeling to, you know, the euphoria of aggression, which, you know, you think back to the Vikings and how much they wanted to die in battle, you know, and how much they loved going around chopping people's heads off. There is in all human beings a, a certain degree, a certain response to that. And I think if you're exposed to violence, that it becomes like a drug. You know, if we got into the the base of it, you know, the dopamine reward system in the human brain, you feel great, you know, when you do this thing. Um, I'm not that way inclined, uh, you know, as, but as a little boy, I used to fight all the time. I loved fighting until I was about 11 and, you know, I was became interested in girls instead, which was a much more interesting thing to do. But it wasn't fighting to hurt anybody. It was fighting for the fun of fighting and nobody really did get hurt. And I think that natural, playful part of it, you know, I mean, I'm horrified to see, you know, the the thought that professional boxing still exists now that we know that pretty much every boxer is brain damaged as a consequence of doing this. But I was talking with a friend last year and she was saying, you know, I used to go to fights every week and I used to, the buzz I got from it. And then one day I looked at this guy with his, his eye smashed in and blood pouring down his face and went, what am I doing? But I do. I think we do have a lot of emotional reactions, and we need to be honest about that if we're going to do anything about it. You know, we need to. You know, people need to fight. You know, sport is a good replacement for war, probably. You know. Yeah, and That's we casualty. need to educate, as you say, which I I think is a fascinating goal uh, mm-hmm. and worthy goal to to have. As listeners to this podcast know, I will occasionally rail on our, I don't know about in the UK, but in the United States, the education system. I know that there are educators who are educating in a progressive way, but the the standard model of educating our children is based on a really old notion about what topics need to be touched upon and, and, and the things that you're talking about. You know, critical thinking, knowing what a psychopath is, knowing how to protect yourself, you know, mm-hmm. knowing what a cult is, knowing what sales. Te- I mean, the sales technique bit 
is yeah. probably the most important thing for people to know because right. every day you're bombarded with advertising and you should know those techniques and because and, when I learned the sales techniques, you know, the yes, yes, yes thing and other kinds of things. I now know when they're doing it to me and instantly yeah. just start smirking at them. Like, I know what you're doing, <laughs> you know, and it's I, just not going to work on me, you know. And and so why do we spend so many years teaching calculus? I'll, you know, I love math myself, but but if I thought about it, the, the benefit of... Uh, uh, teaching advanced mathematics to people who aren't ever going to use it as opposed to teaching people these other topics, uh, to me, it seems more worthy. It's true. And, and I think, you know, I, I mean, I became very interested in the history of education because I, I tend to think if you can find out why something is the way it is, you might be able to change it. Yeah. And universal education began in Prussia. I think it was in 1806. They'd just been defeated at the Battle of Jena by Napoleon and, and they decided they needed more obedient youngsters and so that was how universal education began in the western world to make soldiers in uh, the UK it came along much later 1870s um, and the idea was so that mothers could go and work in the factories and there'd be somebody you know hitting the children for them or, or you know very, you know, Dickens and all of that stuff. In the US, it came about in the 1880s. Um, and the idea was to homogenize immigrant populations, um, the success of which can be seen in, in that we talk about Italian Americans, African Americans, you know, what have you, that, that it's not happened. There are still these separated groups. The education, the purpose is, I don't think it's ever academic. You know, I, I think the academic thing is is a side effect that they're claiming is the central purpose. The central purpose of education is socialization. It's to get people so they grow up and fit into society. And looking at our crime rates, uh, it's not working. It's just not working. And I think we have to rethink education. There's a a great book. It, it's an academic book, but there's a great book by a man called Matthew Lipman uh, called uh, Thinking in Education, where he analyzes the different, you know, the difference in the kind of authoritarian role of education. So, um, you know, we have uh, education consists in the transmission of knowledge from those who know to those who don't know. That's the classic model. And he says, well, no, education is the outcome of participation in a teacher guided community of inquiry among whose goals are the achievement of understanding and good judgment. And he goes through a series of points saying, yeah, we talk about cults, but education, the idea of having an authority figure who is all knowing and gives you the information is I think it's questionable. There's an Indian educationalist who's now working at a university in the UK, and he did a, a little trick where he just he got some kids and he gave them a computer and he said, here are the questions, see what you can find out. And he got another group of kids and he gave them a teacher and a computer and said, here are the questions and the teacher will teach you about it. And what he found was that the kids who had no teacher learned better, learned more than the kids who had a teacher. And we had, That has to raise a question about how we're doing this and what we're doing that you know i do feel that my education and i went to school at a time when children in this country were still hit by their teachers that was still permitted um for me education 
for the most part, school slowed me down. It made me anxious so that instead of going, you know, seven times seven is 49, I'd have to stop and think and go, hang on a minute, 56 would be in because I'd check everything in my own head in case I was going to be told off because education meant that. Uh, Rachel Bernstein in LA was telling me that she had a, a little course with, with some people and she asked them to write down um, something affirmative and positive, encouraging that had been said to them as a child in school. And she said most of the people couldn't think of a single thing. And you're going, so they spent, you know, 10, 13, 14 years in education and nobody once said, you're doing really well, you know. And I think that emphasis with with what we know have known about psychology since the 60s, that if you encourage people, they get better. If you discourage people, they get worse. Yeah, and, I, you know, to our educating listeners out there, I will say that there are shining beacons and people who understand exactly what you're saying. Nothing, nothing is more important than a good teacher. Yeah. And good teachers should be, you know, in, in Germany they're called professor. School teachers are called professor and they're paid properly. Yeah. And, you know, the system has failed the teachers because the teachers should be interested and excited. They should go to bed at night wanting to get up the next morning to talk to their kids. Yeah. Not not going, oh, God, I'm going to have to talk to them about the same, same stuff <laughs> I talked about last year and the year before. It shouldn't be boring. Yeah. Education should be stimulating, exciting. And I think it's moving out of the schools. You know, a lot of, yeah, we want educationalists to be aware of what we're doing but we're more likely you know we're working on graphic novels we're working on video games we just want to go straight to the kids and cut out all of the middlemen and say look this is the world you're living in and provide them with something exciting and interesting that along the way teaches them you know how to recognize a predator right and the point that i'm taking away from what you're saying is that when we have a traditional culture in education that's based on obedience and compliance and not necessarily on edu- you know true education mm-hmm. it might even produce more susceptibility to these charismatic nefarious leaders and if we try to break free of those traditional educational techniques and culture we might actually help to prevent the kinds of things that we see in our culture and in our society i have no doubt about that i spent a long time talking with with cult members in a hopefully therapeutic situation and it comes up again and again and again those who went to the most rigid schools you know, in, in England, we, we, we call private schools public schools because nobody really knows why, I don't think. But they're, they're all charities and they charge huge fees. The worst cases of cult membership I've seen have been people who went to these private schools, people who've been through, a, a you know, an enforcing program. Um, it's, it's not true of all private schools. There's some very good ones. But there is a tendency to put blinkers on people. And I think there's a problem in education generally about that, that, that in dealing with, you know, some academics, you find that they really don't have any breadth of knowledge. You know, they've studied their subject and they know how to parrot, you know, their subject, but they don't have any interest in their subject anymore. And the blinkers have gone on from the start. I mean, it's curious how many people have been innovators in fields that they didn't study. You know, so Bates and 
influenced uh, psychology and counseling, but he was an anthropologist. Uh, even B.F. Skinner was actually an English major, not a psychologist, but we probably better not talk about him. Carl Rogers uh, studied agriculture at university. And I think because they didn't study the subject, their thinking wasn't closed down. And we have to be very aware of that, of of helping people to be creative in their thinking, to think new thoughts, you know, think outside the box, as we say. Um, yeah, and- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's moving on in that way. It's making um, a school, a community of learning, making it a, a, a place of enjoyment. I think also the terrible reliance upon examination that um, every year the PISA statistics come out and every year Finland and Sweden top the literacy charts and they absolutely don't do exams. They, they don't do SATs. Um, they don't start teaching literacy until the age of seven. In fact, they don't teach reading and writing until the age of seven. Every year they come out as the most literate people in the world. And yet we still pile on more tests. The tests we're doing are so that politicians can say, yes, it's gone up. You know, literacy has gone up 0.01% since we came in, according to our fairly random SATS tests. So right. it's, it's measuring competence rather than, you know, the ability to remember things. Well, you know, and, and it, it's, still, it's, it's designed to also punish educators who are underperforming, right? Because yeah. politicians get asked, I suppose, to, to do that, to hold educators accountable. And, I, you know, all of my, uh, you know, high school teacher friends, elementary school teacher friends will tell me that they hate the testing situation and but you know our politicians of public schools run the show and so they they get to they get to dictate that yeah i mean mean, there was an episode there were episodes of the wire that dealt with the education system in baltimore and you've got this incredible situation where kids are being taught the answers to the sats right they're not being taught the subject anymore they just how to parrot the answers and it's like how did we go how did it go so wrong you know right but i i want to be mindful of your time this has been a fascinating conversation i could talk with you for hours maybe uh, we could you know schedule another time to go go down some other roads but but uh please plug your book and your organization and whatever else you'd like to plug here at the end the organization is is called the open minds foundation and that's at openmindsfoundation.org My book is called Opening Minds, The Secret World of Manipulation, Undue Influence and Brainwashing. So, John, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. Uh, I had no idea how fascinating of a dude you would be. Oh, okay. (laughs) So thanks for joining me. Okay, and I look forward to talking again. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.